Hello and welcome to Troy Does the Games Pyeongchang, your daily-ish update about the 2018 Winter Olympics that have just concluded in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Uh, today, I wrap up the Olympics. I know. Uh, I'm a little late in getting this out and uh, I could blame it on catching up on sleep or watching the finale of Celebrity Big Brother, but ultimately I'm just in denial that it's over. And, and I had to spend like five hours closing all the tabs that I had open for NBC Olympics and Olympics.com. But great things happened. I mean, come on. Amazing things happened. Amazing things happened in the last couple days of the Olympics. And uh, I get to talk about them. So we're going to recap everything that happened in the last two days of competition, as well as the closing ceremonies, give you my assessment of that. I've got a few superlatives and other things that I might save for a recap recap episode, uh, but today is your last actual update from the Pyeongchang Olympics. I cannot believe it. Uh, well, let's not let's not wait for anything else. It will not surprise you that the thing I am most excited about and thing that I have to lead with uh, involves first taking it to the house. So let's take it to the house. Oh, do I even need to say what happened? Okay, I'll pay, I'll put it out there. I'll say what happened. The United States men's curling team won the gold medal. They won the gold freaking medal. I mean, they were backs against the wall. They were down and out. They were cast aside by big curling, right? And then they figured it out, right? They qualified again for the Olympics. John Schuster gets his opportunity at redemption. It starts off so poorly, and then they just display grit and ease and skill and cunning and they just win out each of the last five games in order to win a gold medal like can you be more excited about that no I could not be more excited I was so excited about it I couldn't even figure out how to podcast about it so that's why I just waited two days to come on here and see what kind of residual excitement existed and it's still very high I I guess this makes me a curling hipster right I was in on this team on this podcast, you can quote, go back like seven episodes or like the very first week of curling. And I, I was all in on curling's going to be exciting and you better watch this American team, right? I was all in on this being the Cinderella story. Even though they're a top ranked team internationally, they still, this is a Cinderella story given where they were and the struggles that they've had in the Olympics and they get a gold medal. Ugh. So shout out to all those people, John Schuster, Tyler George, Matt Hamilton, John Landsteiner, and the alternate Joe Rolo. You got to give the alternate some credit. He didn't have to play in this tournament, but that doesn't matter. He was basically a coach. So when they called the timeout, Joe came down there, right? So again, this is, this is a team the U.S. has never won better than a bronze medal at the Olympics. And that was only one team back in 2006. The last two Olympics, they've gotten second to last place and last place. Ugh. Now, there's that little part of me that feels like, oh, what if the women had won that last match? What if the women had beaten Great Britain and found their way into the semifinal? Maybe we could have gotten a double-double. But it didn't happen. That's okay. That's okay. You got to celebrate the victories that you got. And we got the one that mattered, if you ask me. And we also won women's hockey, too. That one also kind of mattered, but what an exciting finish. Okay, I I am not going to explain absolutely everything that happened in this game, because I think most people who are actually still listening to this at this point 
probably watched it or at least caught the highlights. But let me just feature a couple of things that I think were amazing and, and why they won, right? This might not be obvious if you're not a big follower of curling, but let, let me explain a couple of the things that happened, why they won. I think number one, they came in and they were relaxed. I mean, this was a team that could have had their shoulders up to their ears, and yet uh, they were just there to enjoy themselves. They were focused, but they were definitely relaxed. Meanwhile, I think Nicholas Adin, the the skip of the Swedish side, he seemed very tense to me, which is which is unlike him. He ended up making more mistakes than I think anyone else on either team. The the captain of the Swedish team, in some ways, his performance is the reason that the U.S. won the gold medal. He made opportunities that the U.S. took advantage of. So that's that's kind of my overall assessment. But let's, I mean, let's look at a couple of these situations, right? There was this double in in end three, right? Sweden was up 2-0. And in the third end, John Schuster had to hit a double in order to knock out two Swedish stones and score two points to tie it up. And he executed it perfectly. And that's the moment where you went, oh, they're here to play, right? They're not just here to lay down. Like, they would like to win a gold medal. And uh, and they and they did. What, what happened after that? Well, they ended up getting a steal in the fourth, uh, really driven by an amazing freeze by John Schuster. A freeze, again, is where the stone goes right up to another stone and stops right there, ideally touching it. Um, and that made Nicholas Adin have to throw a really good shot in order to, uh, to take the point, in order to force a point in that end. And he didn't. And so the U.S. got a point, And uh, that ended up being really helpful. Then you get to the seventh. You know, nothing happened for a couple of ends. We had our intermission. And then we got to the seventh. And there was something about the seventh to me that felt like this could be the most consequential end. Not because anyone's going to score a lot of points, but in fact, quite the opposite. If the U.S. could get Sweden to just score one point, to force them to score one point... It would send us into the eighth end tied. The U.S. would have the hammer in the eighth end, which presumably would mean they would have the hammer in the tenth end, the the last end. And you really want the hammer in the even-numbered ends coming to the end. So even better than a blank would have been a force of one. You obviously don't want to give them two or three in order to uh, have them have the lead. They forced a force of one in the seventh, so Sweden could only score one point. It tied it up 5-5 going into the eighth. And that's where I think the U.S. went from being the underdog who was still in it to actually being the favor, the, the favored team in the match. And I, I wonder whether that mentality affected Nicholas Adin because the eighth end is where it all fell apart. Uh, they didn't make that many mistakes. Sweden, that is, didn't make that many mistakes in the eighth end. But his very last stone was a massive mistake. He basically overhit the American stone in trying to tap it and get themselves the closest stone or shot stone. And what it did is it set up a double. So there were four American rocks in the house, but none of them were closest to the middle. In order to score, the U.S. was going to have to knock out both Swedish stones. But if John Schuster could do that and keep the shooter in the house, he would score five. And that's exactly what happened. He threw a perfect Brock that was well swept. Again, I've said this before, but you know the, the cheater tip in watching curling is if they alternate between saying go and don't go, sweep and whoa, hard and never, right? Those, those are the indicators to you that they're actually pretty close and they're just honing in on the exact specific that it's kind of right, 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 right on that perfect line. 
um, if they have to sweep the whole time or if they don't sweep at all, that usually indicates it's kind of on the far extreme. It's either too heavy or too soft. In this instance, it was just that perfect little bit of sweep to get it perfectly online, and they scored five points. And I got to say, one of those points at least was credit to John Schuster and his sweeping skills. I think it was uh, Hamilton, one of his first stones in that end, clipped a guard that he was not intending to clip. He was supposed to hit the second guard. He hit the first one. And what happened was his stone was kind of rolling down toward the house. And Schuster wisely realized if he swept it, he could get it to bite or basically just touch the very outside edge of the 12th ring. And I, I tweeted about this at the time. I said, that might be important. Pay attention to that stone because that could be either the stone that gives them two or forces a point or or whatever. It could, it could matter. Well, it turns out that was the fifth stone that got them not just a four-ender, but a five-ender. And that five, five points down with two ends to go is a nearly insurmountable lead. And Sweden, you know, did everything they could at that point, but it was too little too late. The U.S. just threw things down on lockdown strategically. Yeah, sure, we can give up two points to them in the ninth end because we go into the tenth end with the hammer, with the last stone, up by three. Yeah, we're not going to make those kinds of mistakes. Now, could it happen? Sure, right? Could the team miss every layup in the last two minutes of the NCAA tournament in order to lose? Sure, it, it does happen. So, I'm totally supportive of Nicholas Adin's uh, decision to play the match out, right? To not concede early. This is for a gold medal after all. The pressure is on. Make them hit their shots. And thankfully, if you're an American fan, they did. All their takeouts were great. Um, they really didn't do any draws, but just, you know, clipping the guards early in the 10th end. They even, you know, blanked through a lot of their stones, just basically meaning throwing it all the way down the sheet with no intent of it, stop, of it stopping in order to just have fewer stones in play to make it less likely that Sweden would score multiple points. And by the time it was clear that Sweden was not going to score or steal three points in that 10th end, Nicholas Adin did a great little 360 delivery of a stone, which was a clear indicator to everybody else that game's over. We're just doing a little flair for the TV. And then they quickly conceded and the U.S. won a gold medal. I mean, if you can't enjoy the story of these guys and the personality of these guys, I don't know who you are. Okay, that's American Girl. Like, I could talk about it more and more and more, and I probably will uh, if I do another episode where I talk about the, the best stories from the Olympics, what made these Olympics great. You're definitely going to see them on that list. Let's look through the other action from the last two days of the Olympics. One thing that I don't think made the Olympics great was this Alpine team event. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it was lame. It sucked. It, it was boring. It was not good TV, in my opinion. The fact that all of the top skiers had already left the country and weren't participating in this was a travesty. And the Americans lost in the first round, unsurprisingly, because all of our top skiers were elsewhere. I also just think the format of this is kind of dumb. You've got four races and you, you don't even have five, right? You can't even go win three out of five. It's you have to win two out of two. And if it's a tie two to two, then we use the best time from the men and the women. It's just too confusing. 
I know you don't time wise want to have five skiers and do five races, but I just think there's got to be a better way to do this if you try to do a team event. But even if you come up with the right format, the most important thing is to try and get all of the top skiers there. They, I think, tried to do this by putting it later after the program of individual competitions was done because you don't want to risk getting injured if you're a skier. This is actually what I think the figure skating team event should do. They should do the individual competition first and do the team event later because then you'll get actually more of the top skaters participating in it. But this just did not work. The Alpine team event, I will put down as the lamest new event. Results-wise, we ended up with Switzerland winning the gold medal over Austria. Norway and France competed for the bronze medal. And I think France just took... Is that true? Did France just take the uh, bronze medal? No, it went to Norway. See, it's even confusing to see who won the freaking medals here. So I'm not a fan. I mean, Switzerland and Austria winning the gold and silver should tell you, yeah, this is probably a fairly fair race because they have the best skiers um, in many ways. But the fact that the U.S. lost to Great Britain in the first round of this playoff just should tell you everything you need to know about how lame this event was. Not lame, but also not as exciting was the cross-country long-distance event for the men, the 50-kilometer mass start. Uh, the gold went to Finland's Levo Niskanen, and the silver and bronze went to athletes from Russia, neither of whom I would expect you to know their names. This was not a particularly exciting marathon. Uh, it, it sometimes is. It's sometimes really grueling. But uh, I watched a, a reasonable portion of it and finally just turned it off. Uh, Niskanen did beat out uh, Bolshinov by only 20 seconds. But the two of them were two and a half minutes ahead of the bronze medalist, Andre Larkov. So I just, I don't know. It wasn't my cup of tea. There were so many more exciting races with better finishes in the cross country and the biathlon uh, schedule. And eh, this wasn't my favorite. I actually enjoyed watching the women's more, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, speaking of women's, we got the bronze medal game in curling for for women. And Japan beat out Great Britain. So I came into the semifinals cheering for Great Britain and Eve Muirhead. And they come away as the ones without the medal. But Japan did have some great performances. They were a team that was very excited to even be in the semifinals. And you, you got to be happy for them. They seem really delighted to get a medal out of it. I'll talk about the gold medal game in a second when I talk about the last day's worth of action. We also got a bronze medal game for men's hockey. And Canada held on to get that bronze medal after losing a, a heartbreaker to Germany. The Canadians almost lost to the Czech Republic. I mean, I wouldn't say they almost lost. They got out to a lead, a significant lead against Czech Republic. I think they were up 4-1. to one, And then they just kept giving up stupid goals down, down the stretch. It, the last three or four goals that Canada scored, Czech Republic scored again within 30 seconds. Uh, in fact, there was one that they scored that got called back, I think for... I think it was for a high stick or something, but had that goal counted, Canada might have found a way to, to lose that one. So Canada does come out with the bronze medal in men's hockey. I still think they're going to be really upset about having no NHL players. So that's a future discussion for 2022 in Beijing. Czech Republic just misses out on the medal. In snowboarding on the second to last day, we got the men's final in big air. And finally, a goal to Seb Toots, to Sebastian Toutant from Canada. Really just threw down some sick throws, uh, some sick runs. And the silver medal went to Kyle Mack from the U.S. with the bronze medal to Billy Morgan from Great Britain. I thought it was pretty interesting. I'm not totally sold on big air still. I like that they have to count two runs out of their three in order to, to get a medal. It's not just one big trick. But... 
I'm I'm not convinced yet. I, they're not going to get rid of it because they're trying to keep all the X game stuff in there, and it did look really cool visually where they set the venue and the backdrop when the snowboarders were standing at the top of the ramp. It was really really beautiful, but the actual competition itself, I find it a little tougher to follow. It's not my favorite, but good outcome for a favorite Sebtutan to finally get a gold medal in this Olympics. Also not my favorite, as well discussed on this, is the parallel giant slalom in snowboarding. The lead story here is Esther Ledesca, who won the surprise gold medal in the Super G, having been primarily a snowboarder, won a skiing gold medal. She gets the double in this one, wins the gold medal in the ladies' parallel giant slalom, becomes the first ever woman, and I think the first athlete in almost 100 years, to win a gold medal in two different sports. Uh, at the same Olympics and I think you know this even counts as two different disciplines so she might be the first one to do that but an incredible outcome for her she beats out Selena Jorg from Germany who got the silver medal and the bronze went to Hofmeister of Germany I, I watched some of this even though it's not my favorite and in the ladies competition Esther I think was the only person I saw in a race who came back from being behind in one of her heats in order to win Everyone else, whoever was winning at the first split, whoever got the the uh, the quick lead, ended up winning their heat. Esther was the only one with that come-from-behind ability, and you have to imagine that's part of her success. On the men's side, the only one that I saw do that was the Korean Lee Sung-ho. He ended up getting the silver medal. He didn't have a good last run, but he was one who was able to come back from being behind at a de deficit. Still an exciting and impressive silver medal for Lee Sung-ho on home snow. I guess you could say not home ice. The gold went to the Swissman, Nevin Galmarini, and the bronze went to Slovenia's Jan Koser. So that's Parallel Giant Slalom. I'm sure we'll see it back at the next Olympics. Eh, I don't know. Now, one that I think we'll probably see again at the next Olympics, and I think the jury is still out on, I thought it was fine, but I think the jury's still out on it, was this mass start in speed skating. Uh, if you didn't watch it, I would encourage you to actually go find a video of it, because I want to know what your reaction to it is. It's a bit bizarre, because you've got essentially 20 people out on the ice in this long track oval, but when it gets down to the final couple of laps, there's really only like five or six who are still in contention. And it's kind of unclear to me why those five or six people are the ones that are still in contention. Uh, there is this bizarre point system that makes sense in the context of semifinals or heats or maybe even for points on like a world cup circuit but has absolutely no consequence whatsoever in the finals and the way essentially that works is you do 20 laps and whoever crosses the line first second or third at the end of the race gets first second and third points they get 60 40 20 points but there are three sprint laps during the race where if you win that lap, you get five points, three points, or one point. So even if you win all of the sprint laps, you're never going to beat out the person who came in third place in the race. But you will end up technically qualifying as fourth place. Now, in an Olympics, that doesn't matter, right? Fourth place, you get nothing in the finals. But it was consequential in the semifinals because... Something like, you know, eight to ten people moved on from each heat. So, yeah, the first three people to cross the line would move on. But also, if you won any of those sprint laps, you would move on. And if you kind of got together enough points, maybe being in second place on a lap with a good finish time, you might move on. I think it's a little difficult to follow. It's obviously difficult to explain. But I can see where there's some strategy in it. But then when you get to the finals, it's just a race. 
to the end, a 20-lap race. And what confused the hell out of me was there were people who were being rabbits and were leading out a pack and essentially ruining their chances at a medal. And they seemed to always be someone who had a teammate in the race. So this, again, reminded me very much of the Tour de France and cycling where maybe, you know, back in the day where they were all roided up, one of the U.S. Postal Service guys would go out and set a particular pace so that it was ideal for Lance Armstrong to close. And that guy at the very last minute would peel off, let the people who had energy go for a run, a sprint at the end, and and Lance Armstrong would win. They tried to do that, for example, on the ladies' final, where the American led out those last couple of laps, I think, trying to set up the ideal pace for Heather Bergsma. Um, and this was Mia Manganello was out in front of the pack until the last lap, and then she just kind of peeled off and gave up. And I guess the idea was to give Heather Bergsma the best possible opportunity to come in at a medal place, and then she didn't. Um, the gold went to the Japanese skater, Nana Takagi, who we've seen in other competitions. Uh, the silver went to Kimbo Rum, and the bronze went to Netherlands' Irene Schouten. Again, I just it's tough to follow, but I, I get why it's interesting. It's certainly more exciting than some of the, <laughs> the longer speed skating races. On the men's side, we did get a gold medal for Korea. Lee Sung-hoon won the gold medal with the silver medal to Bart Swings of Belgium and the bronze medal to Cohen Verwish of Netherlands. I thought that the American Joey Mantilla might come in and get uh, a medal spot, but he did not. I think he ended up crossing the line fourth. Again, it's tough for me to like sort this out with a stupid point system, but he crossed the line fourth or fifth and he just never, I think, had closing speed. The The three of them ended up breaking away and it was just deciding between the three of them who was going to get what medals. I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to see this again at another Olympics and then we'll, we'll decide from there, but that closed out long track. The United States ended up with only that bronze medal in the women's pursuit, a really disappointing finish for the U.S., and uh, God, I hope they can do better in 2022. All right, let's look at the last day's action. We got the conclusion of the four-man bobsled, and we got another bonus medal. Uh, Germany took the gold medal, unsurprisingly, with a silver medal also to Germany, but a shared silver medal with Korea. So Korea continues its success on its home track in sliding. I think I don't know to what degree they have an advantage. Do they get continued access to the track that the other competitors don't? I have to imagine that's part of the story here. But still, you got to go out there and deliver on four runs and you can't make any mistakes. And it doesn't look like they made any significant mistakes. They were about two tenths up over fourth place Switzerland, fifth place to Latvia, and sixth place to Justin Cripps, pilot of Canada, who we thought was going to be a medal contender. And I, I, maybe he had, I tried to find if he just had one bad run, but it looked like he just was slow all day. The best American sled was in ninth place, uh, led by Cody Baskew. And I think it should be acknowledged because I didn't mention this before, but the American bobsled team has been kind of in utter ruins for the last year. Uh, the Their lead pilot, Steve Holcomb, who was a gold medal winner with the night train, was the first ever gold medal in the four-man bobsled for the U.S. in 60 years, uh, and then backed it up with two more bronzes in Sochi. He was really the leader of this team, and uh, he died in the last year, and in somewhat unexpectedly, and so this they've really just tried to kind of fill in a gaping hole in their roster. 
And they put forward three teams, but none of them were able to be as competitive as Holcomb was. And so we really knew coming into this Olympics that the U.S. were not going to be competitive for a medal. And it's a real shame. I hope in the next four years we can get some pilots coming in who can help bring the bobsled back up to a medal contender for the U.S., but again, you know, sometimes you just get these like once in a generation talents and Steve Holcomb was definitely one of them. I should mention because I mentioned the women's British bobsled team who had to crowdfund in order to get to the Olympics because their national organization pulled funding for them. I should mention that the highest placing British team in this competition was uh, 17th. Yeah. So the British men ended up 17th and 18th. The British women, who they said were less of a medal contender, ended up, I think, eighth. So there you go. Take that, British bobsled. Uh, okay, final results from the final day of the Olympics. We had the cross-country skiing ladies, basically long-distance marathon, 30K mass start in the classical style. And boy, was this, a, I think, maybe the last appearance uh, in coronation for Merritt Bjergen. Merritt is the winningest medalist in Winter Olympic history. She came into the Olympics, I think, in fourth place. She now leaves this Olympics being the most decorated Winter Olympian of all time. She wins her 15th medal. I think it's her seventh or her eighth gold medal. And man, did she win it convincingly. I was asked by someone earlier in the day, who I thought had the most dominant performance in Pyeongchang. And I still think the answer is Chloe Kim. And, and I'll talk about that in my final podcast uh, that's probably going to come out tomorrow or Wednesday. But I think Merit Bjergen put herself up on that list of, of top dominant performances. She ended up winning the race by a full two minutes. And there just was no one. I mean, with about 10 to 15 kilometers into the race, they had a pack of 15 people that were still together, a peloton that were all close together. And then it's like Merit Bjergen just said, I can beat all y'all bitches and I'm just going to ski. And she did, and no one could keep up with her. It was no question, and yet it was still interesting to watch, I think. Now, one of the things that made it most interesting to watch is, I think, one of the heartbreakers of this of this Olympics is what happened to the Austrian skier, Teresa Stadlober. She was firmly in second place in the silver medal position about two-thirds of the way through the race when she took a wrong turn. She and Krista Parmakowski were trying to chase down Bjorgen. They were about a minute to a minute and a half behind. And in this long distance course, you alternate between essentially turning left and turning right at a certain point. And Stadlober turned right. Parmakowski, you could kind of see, hesitated for a second as if to say, isn't she going the wrong way? Yeah, yeah, she's going the wrong way. I got to go left. And she went left and uh, Parmakowski found herself in second place. It took a minute for Stadlerberg to finally realize what happened, and then she kind of had to circle back, figure out how, how to get back on track, whether she was disqualified or what. She ended up getting back on track and was in eighth place and just could never recover, which is devastating. She pretty much had a medal in her grasp and loses it. So the silver then went to Krista Parmakowski with the bronze medal to Stina Nielsen, the the sprint specialist from Sweden. Uh, obviously had a great race to go that long distance. It came down to a sprint between her and Osberg from Norway for that bronze medal, and you had to know that Nielsen was going to take it away, and she did by two seconds. The American Jesse Diggins ended up in seventh place in her last race of the Olympics, and she crossed the line, I think, more exhausted than anyone else that I saw so clearly she was trying to make something happen and trying to make a move she fell 
early in the race. I think she got her ski caught up or something, but she took a tumble, uh, lost about 10 seconds. And that's tough to recover from mentally, and you never know what kind of physical pain one might have endured when, when they take a tumble. But she ended up with a top 10 finish and was clearly sprinting all the way through those last few kilometers. Jesse Diggins ends the Olympics with a sixth place, a fifth place, a fifth place, a first place, and a seventh place. I think she was top 10 in every single race at the Olympics, a phenomenal result on top of her gold medal. Uh, a little surprising, Heidi Vang ended up in eighth. I thought she was going to vie for a medal. She is the Norwegian distance skier who purportedly sleeps 12 hours a night is the secret to her success. So I was I was looking forward to talking about that. And then she didn't end up getting a medal. So I mentioned it anyway. All right. And then finally, we got the gold medal games in women's curling and men's ice hockey. In women's curling, Sweden handily defeats Korea to win the gold medal. They were Sweden took some, some late uh, losses in the round robin play. So they didn't end up qualifying as the top overall team into the semifinals. But I have to say, I think they were the favorite. Um, they were by far the best team. Korea had had some magic in order to get to this point, And I was very excited for them as I mentioned on this last podcast about why they're wonderful and you should love this Korean curling team but they were outclassed and the Koreans got the silver medal something that they were very delighted by and should be very proud of their result the highest ever result by Korea and I think the highest ever result by an Asian curling team at the Olympics and then finally we had the almost award for the Olympics uh, the men's ice hockey God, Germany almost had the biggest Cinderella. I mean, I thought the U.S. were kind of a Cinderella story. Germany was properly a Cinderella story, right? Every single game in this tournament that they won, it was against someone they were supposed to lose to, right? They beat Sweden, I think. Then they beat Canada. And now with the Olympic athletes from Russia, they were ahead in the closing minute of the third period give up the equalizer goal with Russia's empty net and then lose in overtime. And, and yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that predicted the Russians would win. And so I should be happy that I got it right. But honestly, you got to have, you had to have been cheering for Germany at that point. If you enjoy an underdog, man, they could have won the gold medal in hockey. Like who would have predicted that? But they didn't. Olympic athletes from Russia get, I think, only their second gold medal of the Olympics after the ladies' figure skating competition. Well, that concludes all the action, right? And I can't even look ahead to the next action ahead. I will, though, talk briefly about the uh, closing ceremonies and what I thought about it. I was I thought it was great that they brought in Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir and also Terry Gannon to talk about it, right? The closing ceremonies are supposed to be more fun. They're more exciting and they're really focusing on the experience of the Olympic athletes. So I think it's a lot better to have someone in the booth who was a former athlete, both Johnny and Tara were, and less focus on the kind of newsiness of it. Plus they also bring the fun and the whimsy, right? My favorite part of the broadcast was when they asked Johnny Weir what his favorite part was, his reaction was the exact same as when they showed up on the screen, which was pandas, right? The fact that Johnny Weir loves pandas was one of my takeaways from the closing ceremonies, I, I think added to it uh, because the pageantry itself was a little bizarre and a little unapproachable in some ways. Uh, we had the, God, what did we have? We had a like t giant tur sea turtle going through a time warp. And then we had a whole dance like based on clocks and like the time spectrum, uh, which which was cool looking, but it was definitely like 
you know, Bill and Ted's excellent Korean adventure. Like, like if you were high or like tripping balls, this would have appealed to you greatly. Uh, but it, I thought it was visually interesting. Again, incredible use of the projection technology that they've added into these Olympic ceremonies. What I was highly disappointed by, though, were the K-pop performances. Like, I expected a full revolving door of all of the top K-pop stars and a little bit of a surprise. Like, you know, they had the Spice Girls reunited in the closing of the London Olympics and gave an amazing performance. And we didn't get anything like that here. We got CL performing. She actually sang one of her songs from her old girl group to anyone. And they weren't there. It was just her. So it was like Beyonce performing at the Super Bowl and then singing one of her Destiny's Child songs and not having the other two show up for a song and a half, which is what they did in the Super Bowl. And I, yeah, they were only there for a song and a half, but that's fine. They had to be there. It would be weird if they weren't there and she was singing Bootylicious. Well, that's kind of what happened here, right? CL, who's a little bit kind of trying to create a Beyonce storyline for herself in the K-pop world, breaks off from her girl group has her own solo thing, comes out, does a performance against what I thought was a very bare backdrop with not very much interesting visually going on. Um, clearly lip syncing, but I'm not going to hate on you for that because it is the Olympics. But then, you know, drops in I Am The Best, their 2NE1 song. I'm getting way in the weeds here for all you people who don't know K-pop, but like, it was disappointing. I need to explain to you how disappointing this was. And then we got the boys group, we got EXO, and that's it. Like, no BTS. We didn't even get Psy. Like, I thought for sure, you know, the the biggest Korean pop sensation ever. Yeah, he's a one-hit wonder. Sure, it's been overplayed. But, like, come on. If there's a song that everyone knows in, uh, uh, from Korea, it's definitely Gangnam Style. And we didn't have that. I guess they thought it was a bit too center center of the target. And they were going a little different. My my intrepid Korean uh, expert about all things K-pop, Magali, she tells me that the, the finale essentially was run by one production company who has certain artists on their roster. And so they only wanted to use it to promote certain artists. Uh, so I guess, you know, that's that's that that's business for you. But come on, even even. Ah, oh, okay. I'm just going to stop now. They could have done so much with it in the K-pop world. And then they invite a Dutch DJ to close out, you know, and have all the athletes dance. It just, I don't know. It was, it was not, not my favorite. Good use of the ramp again. I like that. They, they used the ramp going up to the cauldron. They used it as a big guitar fret or the, the neck of a guitar when they had this teenage guitarist playing. thought that was really clever. They used the projection of the snowflakes to go up the uh, ramp in order to extinguish the Olympic cauldron for the games. I thought that was really cool. Um, and then we also had the, the Beijing section. So they do the handoff from the current city over to the next city to host the Olympic winter games, which is going to be Beijing in 2022. And that next city always gets a portion of the finale in order to kind of get people excited and do their early marketing. I thought it was pretty cool. That's where we got the pandas. It went a little long in the skating around spirograph kind of thing with pictures. It, it, it dragged a little bit. They, I think, you know, did a good job with the nice like messages welcoming people to Beijing and using this idea of the envelope and the panda was flying through and gathering messages from people all over China. I thought that was was interesting and well done. And I always love it when they include a nod to the previous Olympics, which they did here. They, they had the logos on the different screens for all the previous Olympics. So again, 
I thought it was good. It was generally interesting. Not as good as Tokyo's was at the Rio Summer Games finale. I thought Tokyo's was way more exciting and got me more hyped for those games. But uh, obviously, I'm going to watch the Winter Olympics in 2022. So, yeah, maybe I'm not the audience they're trying to speak to. The one thing I wish I'd have seen, and I wish the Olympics did this, and it's such a bummer because they do this great changing of the guard over to the next country that's going to be hosting the Olympics in four years, but they don't do anything to acknowledge the Paralympics that are going to start in two weeks, right? We've got this other great, amazing sporting competition that's going to happen in the exact same venues. It's run by the same company, the International Olympic Committee. And there's absolutely no acknowledgement of it in any of these ceremonies. And I just think that is a huge missed opportunity. If there's anything we know about the Paralympics, it's, it's that when people watch it, they get more into it. But more often than not, they aren't aware of it or they don't have easy access to it. It's not covered in a lot of countries or on a lot of stations. Uh, but I think if you got people excited about it, or if you just at least included a nod to it to say, hey, stick around, we've still got these other amazing athletes coming in two weeks and you might want to watch them. I just think that would do so much more for the Paralympics and for the Olympic movement overall. And uh, I just think it's a missed opportunity. So I'm glad they did the changeover to the next city, but I wish they also did a nod to the Paralympics. All right, that is, wow, I think all I have. I can't believe I did this in under 40 minutes. That's just insane to me because that was two days plus a closing ceremony. Um, I am tempted to get into some of my like big, big, big wrap-up comments for the games and my overall assessment, but I think I am going to do another episode. Uh, I think it's going to be some combination of superlatives or top 10 things that made it great or maybe even things I change or things that what changes did I like or didn't I like well, we'll kind of figure that out if there's something that you'd like to hear me talk about in particular if there's an opinion of the games overall that you'd like to share let me know you can always reach me on Twitter I'm at Troy Steinmetz that's at T-R-O-Y S-T-E-I-N-M-E-T-Z. You can also email me, troydoesthegames at gmail.com. If this is the last that you happen to listen to me and you don't catch my recap episode, thank you so much for listening at all. I know uh, it takes some time out of your day and hopefully I <laughs> make it go a little bit better by having someone in your ear who could tell you some of the interesting stories about events you maybe didn't watch and can bring some excitement about the Olympics. Just know that uh, the Paralympics are coming up. There's two, uh, two more sets of Olympics coming up. We've got Tokyo in 2020 and Beijing in 2022. And heck, we even know what the next two Summer Olympics after that are. So there's tons of sport to celebrate and bring that excitement. Thank you, as always, for listening. And I'll probably talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>